welcome to The Middle of Things, episode four, otherwise known as episode three, part two. Right, yeah. This is uh, Rodrigo. And I'm Kenny from San Francisco. And uh, usually we say we're going to start in the middle of things, but this time we literally are starting in the middle of episode three or right. something like that. Yeah, something like that. Okay, so we left off with Hartford Field and uh, now right, yeah, his, back to uh, the natural. His theory about truth, yeah. All right. So he says, the concept of mathematical truth as explicated must fit into an overall account of knowledge in a way that makes it intelligible how we have the mathematical knowledge that we have. It is not surprising that modulo such combinatorial accounts of mathematical truth, there is little mystery about how we can obtain mathematical knowledge. We need only account for our ability to produce and survey formal proofs. However, squeezing the balloon at that point already... oh. So he, he uses this. He uses reason. this analogy. Yeah. Ah! Yeah, I've been using you this thought for years. You, you thought you got it. Well, no, I've more. been doing it for years. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I used to <laughs> actually play with the bubbles in the wallpaper. Oh, my gosh. I know. This is my childhood. <laughs> okay. However, squeezing the balloon at that point apparently makes it bulge in the side of truth. The more nicely we tie up the concept of proof, the more closely we link the definition of proof to combinatorial rather than semantic features, the more difficult it is to connect it up with the truth of what is being thus proved, or so it would appear. So basically, um, the more you solve the problem of knowledge, the further you get from truth. The more you solve the problem of truth, the further you get from knowledge. Yeah. And yet, knowledge requires truth. Right, yeah. <laughs> and truth, I mean, it's got to be knowable otherwise. Otherwise, what are you talking about? Right, yeah. At least possibly knowable. Or at least, or at least some of them have to be knowable. It's some kind of access. Yeah. It can't be, totally, it can't be thoroughly alien. Right. So, he, he, so w- one of the things we like about Ben Asraf is that uh, whereas there are very many options regarding reference and knowledge, he comes right out uh, in favor of uh, causal uh, approaches to both, right. which we are also sympathetic to. He says, I favor a causal account of knowledge on which for X to know that S is true requires some causal relation to obtain between X and and the reference of the names, predicates, and quantifiers of S. I believe in addition in a causal theory of reference, thus making the link to my saying knowingly that S double sorry, thus making the link to my saying knowingly that S doubly causal. Yeah. Such knowledge of houses, trees, truffles, dogs, and bread boxes presents the clearest case and the easiest to deal with. Presumably because dogs cause, you know, like by biting you or being seen. Right. Okay. Other cases of knowledge can be explained as being based on inferences, based on cases such as these, although there must evidently be interdependencies. Yeah. I did, well, I did want to say another thing, though, which is just that he he makes, he says that his link to saying that knowledge uh, is... Uh, the link to having knowledge is doubly causal in the sense that both the knowledge qua knowledge is causal but also the the truth of what is known is causal in the sense that the names uh, well he has a causal theory of reference and so that the, the reference of the terms involved are determined by a causal relation of some sort when it comes to the issue or, or of cases of like houses trees truffles dogs and bread boxes like he says in those cases, our names for them are also, uh, 
their references are fixed causally, right? As as dogs bite us and as we let me let me ask buy you bread boxes and a whatnot. serious question. Yeah, have you ever actually used a bread box? No, <laughs> no, I've never actually used a bread <laughs> do, box. Do you, know, do you know the Twenty One Questions game where you start with "Is it bigger than a bread box?" No, no, you never <laughs> is heard this it before? bigger than a bread box? You never heard this? I mean, I didn't know that that was the canonical starting. It point. is well, the canonical is animal, vegetable, mineral. Oh, of course, yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But but then yeah. after that, it's it's bigger than a bread box. Ah, nice. Which means, of course, that everybody was. Using bread boxes all day, every day. Right. Right? Yeah. But I have not used a bread box in a long time. I don't However, think I, did I ever grow up, have. I did grow up with them. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. Well, not here, but in the tropics. Right. Uh, they, they, they have um, bread, well, boxes full of sweet bread. And it's uh, always available right over the fridge. Uh-huh. And I guess the idea is that you got to keep them moist. Right. Uh, like, so, you know, so it doesn't dry out. But I've never seen one here. I actually have one at home, but I never use it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Anyway, bread boxes are a pretty big deal back then, but not today. Truffles, still a big deal. But the reason why I brought this up is because I wanted to say that I think there's a second issue that he doesn't, that he doesn't explore or emphasize enough, which is an issue for Platonism, which is just that not only is... Platonism seemed to, uh, well, throw out the baby with the bathwater epistemologically, if you want to call it a theory of knowledge. It also doesn't allow itself to even have a causal theory of reference for the mathematical terms. Yes, you've been saying this. So uh, yeah. the problem with the problem with Platonism is what are these objects? The problem with the epistemology, or rather formalism, is no, no, no. See the way no, around. No, 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 not formalism. The problem with Platonism is how do we know these objects? Yes, right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, it says what the objects are. Well, it, you know. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Um, so, reference having to be causal ends up being a problem for both. Yeah, it ends up being a problem for both. For both knowledge and reality. Yeah, for uh, knowledge and... The reality of the objects. Meaning or... Meaning, yeah, you're yeah. right, truth. Truth, truth yeah. and knowledge, right? So reference, reference being causal ends up being a problem for both knowledge and truth. Yeah, not surprisingly, right? Since uh, truth is a constituent of knowledge. <laughs> of course, yeah, right, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, um, but I guess the reason it's called out is because there was an effort to rejigger the semantics to not rely on reference, right? Or at least ostensibly. I mean, he does talk about Tarski and that whole thing, I guess. I no, mean, no, I, no, I'm not saying he... Of course, he wants it to be tied to Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. But but the alternative... But the standard plate. The combinatorial views. Oh, oh, right, right. Uh, attempt to get mathematical truth without reference. Yeah. Or I mean, even Putnam and Benastra from those earlier papers are saying... It's any object, you know, it doesn't sure. have to be any particular... If it's not any particular object, you don't need causation from any particular object. Perhaps you don't even need causation. That is, you really have to drive home the idea that you've got to accept the Tarski semantics before this becomes a problem. Yeah. Whereas the problem of knowledge is independent of the Tarski semantics. I see. You know, being in a mental state requires something to cause that mental state. Yeah. So I think that's why. Yeah. You only need it for one. But you're right. Once you accept the Tarski semantics, which, especially in the field way, that gives reference pride of place in, in, in advance of truth, then causal theories of, of reference 
are going to present problems for both uh, truth and knowledge yeah. of mathematics. Okay. <clears throat> so next is, if numbers are the kinds of entities they are normally taken to be, then the connection between the truth conditions for the statements of number theory and any relevant events connected with the people who are supposed to have, no have mathematical knowledge cannot be made out. One obvious answer that some of these propositions are true if and only if they are derivable from certain axioms via certain rules will not help. For to be sure, we can ascertain that those conditions obtain. But in such a case, what we lack is the link between truth and proof when truth is directly defined in the standard way. I feel like we've already discussed that. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But despite their remoteness from sense experience, we do have a perception also, of the objects of set theory. Oh, wait, but this is a quote from Gerdel. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, right. So, this is, this is, um, so Benastrop basically is done with the combinatorialists. Right. He's, he's, uh, he's, uh, dispatched them, I think. Uh, and now he's going to deal with the Platonists. And, uh, the, the famous Platonist here is Gerdel, who right. was, um, he was kind of mystical about it. He's this the starkest stuff. example of a Platonist yeah, in the was... sense that he says, look, we have knowledge of it. We, we come to know it. So we must have some sort of special faculty which allows us to see that mathematical statements are true. Yeah. You know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of uh, Penrose. Oh, yeah? Penrose loves him. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, right? There you go. Yeah. No, I think they're very similar in temperament. Yeah. Because uh, Gödel is... Uh, I mean, I think what, what they have in common... With Penrose, I'm not speaking to math. I'm speaking to mind, right? No, I, yeah, yeah, of so, course, yeah. So Penrose He's, on mind. He, yeah, he goes on and on about Girdle, right? Oh, and yes, you're right. I remember. He's the emperor's new mind. Yes, whatever. of course. Yeah. I remember now. Yeah. But, but I didn't make that connection. What right. I, what I, I was just thinking that Penrose has a, how should I put it? Um, a kind of an inflationary conception of mind. Okay. You know? um, as in something that, preserves the full dignity of what has always been presumed to be you know to be human or a mind right um and girl i think it's very similar there's this sense of the dignity of mathematics mm. that we as organisms surely rise to the divinity of mathematical truth yeah uh, I, mean, I don't want to impute religious notions to either of them sure uh, but but there is a sense in which they are platonic in spirit, not just in thesis. Mm -hmm. You know, Plato does talk about having divine access to truth. Right. Right. And I think they take this to heart, if not literally. Yeah. Right. So let's read then the quote. This is uh, by Gödel, but it's quoted by Benassarif himself as an example of what it is to be really Platonist on math. Right. Okay. By the way, when I said I'm Platonist, I'm not like this. Okay. No, I know, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but but I am to a degree. It's just like, I, I'm not... Let's put it this way. I want to say that I'm a Platonist, but I'm also embarrassed. <laughs> okay. Right? He's not embarrassed. Yeah, no, not at all. Okay. He's a true believer. <laughs> right. So, but despite their remoteness from sense experience, we do have a perception also of the objects of set theory, as is seen from the fact that the axioms force themselves upon us as being true. I don't see why we should have less confidence in this kind of perception, that is, in mathematical intuition, 
than in sense perception, which induces us to build up physical theories and to expect that future sense perceptions will agree with them, and moreover to believe that a question not decidable now has meaning and may be derived in the future. So you can see the motivation here straight out of his incompleteness uh, work. Yeah, and right. That, uh, he doesn't want to admit that just because something is undecidable, it isn't any less real, any less true, any less true, any yeah. less everything. Yeah, right. Um, that's that's very respectable, um, because he's holding on to a semantics that makes sense. Yeah. And as to the mathematical intuition, intuition being an ancient word for perception. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he's really... well, yeah, and because he does it in a way that where you can like prove it in the meta theory, meta theory, but not in the object theory, right? I mean, he does. His proof is such that you see that the statement is true in the meta theory. Oh yes, but right. not but not in the object theory. Right. So these proofs then become not so much uh, providers of semantics yeah. as much as instruments of perception. Yeah. Right. Right. Of 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 not sense perception, but perception of the kind required for logical mathematical truth. Exactly. Right. So. This is very much like a mind's eye understanding of yeah, right. mathematical intuition, right? Right. In other words, In when the mathematician says, "I see now," well, we're supposed to take this literally. It's like you, he really does see, yeah, not with the the optical eye, yes, but with the mind, not eye. with his outer sense, but with his inner sense, That's so right. to speak. <laughs> it's it's not difficult yeah. to see why this is jarring for a physicalist. Uh, right conception of mind and yeah of mind mm-hmm. yeah okay so then that's the Platonist and then Benasserov continues you want to read yeah so so the next Benasserov quote is is largely through these proofs that mathematical knowledge is obtained and transmitted in short this aspect of mathematical knowledge it's essentially lingu- uh, essentially linguistic means of production and transmission gives their impetus to the class of views that I call combinatorial. Noticing the role of proofs in the production of knowledge, it seeks the grounds of truth in the proofs themselves. So that was largely a point that was made when we were talking about Hilbert. Yeah. Yeah. So what would make such an assignment of the predicate true? Okay, this this pair of quotes here. But I I just want to make a, a, a... our voice, some of my uh, disgruntlement, one of my pet peeves, which is just that this this statement that Benasserov just read out um, and, encapsulates you know, how how easy it is to put epistemology first, <laughs> to uh, sort of be subordinated. Well, what statement exactly? Noticing the role of proofs in the production of knowledge. It seeks the grounds of truths in the proofs themselves. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it literally is, in some sense, an attempt to reduce truth to knowledge. And yeah. Well, this is sort a of com- manifestly backwards. Yeah. It's a common theme. It is a common theme. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is behind positivism. Right. It's behind. I think ultimately it's behind a deep desire for certainty. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But there are. Yeah. I think, I think that's worth elaborating. Um. The reason why I think it's important is because 
though there was a linguistic turn in the 20th century, mm-hmm. it was it didn't it didn't leave the epistemic turn behind. No, so to speak, it just relocated the issues in many, at least a large part of the early uh, analytic philosophy. Yeah, did no, that. I did that. I think that's right. Or, or to put it differently, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think it was like a representation mm-hmm. of of the epistemic uh, turn or the issues of the epistemic turn, mm-hmm. but because it hadn't entirely closed it off. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Or closed it out, rather. Yeah. Their combination is at the center of so-called linguistic philosophy. Yeah. How is it that by analyzing the sentences by which we ask what it is that we know, mm-hmm. we can arrive at um, well answers, answers to the question how we know? Yeah. Right. And and I think you're right. Um, I mean. This is a very personal thing for me because I, I very much fell into both traps. Uh, yeah. I very much um, went for the idea that to know to know something is to do something with the sentence by which you declare that you know it. Mm-hmm. You know? And, yeah, and, right. And, yeah. And, and doing anything with a sentence immediately takes you to, uh, you know, logical form and other linguistic analyses right um and you know there's no escaping the power the psychological power of proof yeah uh you know when when you when you understand a mathematical truth and believe it to be true that belief is bolstered in an importantly different way by proof importantly different from the way in which uh it might be confirmed by examples or other such arguments i can persuade you of something but when i've proven it it's a whole different matter yeah there's a sense in which you've only understood it for the first time but of course that can't literally be true and that's (laughs) that's that's the insight we have now right yeah that that understanding it must come in advance of any proofs or right. derivations, um, but it's not, it's not difficult to see how. Actually, it's more than this. It's more than this. By tying um, truth to proof, you uh, you explain the nature of proof itself. You know, I mean, it's truth is. A little mysterious, but theoremhood is not. Theoremhood is plain. Is plain. See, I don't. I haven't. I don't have a very good theory about this, but I have a certain, I don't know, hunch <laughs> that isn't uh, that I haven't developed fully yet. But I'll bring it up now, which is just that I think that in the philosophy of language, what happened was. Um, a lot of people were empiricists. Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. And But in the philosophy of language, I think what that amounts to is understanding that in some sense, syntax is the appearances of... Like, syntax is... It's, it's, right, it's right there. It's what's like... It's what's present to your mind. Right. Um, it's tangible in sure. some sense, right? The Absolutely. syntax, the form, right? Right. In, 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 uh, in, in the spirit of formalism as a science of formal systems... 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. But the reference, uh, well, the reference isn't there in the sentence, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's somewhere in the world, right? perhaps inscrutable or who knows. And, and not right? obviously accessible to you. Here are the, the use of the word accessible. Right? Of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not obviously accessible, right? Perhaps only resembling the structure of the sentence, right? So you get resemblance, right? Which is another big empiricist concept. Right, right. Um, and, and there's a parallel, too, between the syntactic form and the semantic form. Yeah. Or not, I don't want to say form of the semantics, but no, let's but, say the structure of the semantic relation yeah. has a certain parallel to the structure of the syntactic form. Right. And that suggests that perhaps they're redundant. Yeah. And that really all the only thing that matters is the syntax. Well, it, I mean, the, the, the taking of what mattering to be the syntax, I think, is the empiricist impulse, is no, what I I'm trying it. to say. I yeah. get it. And I agree with you. Right. I agree yeah. with you. I mean, I, I... Whereas I think the rationalists feel the other way. Often. Meaning they make the other mistake? Yeah, meaning they make the Platonistic, Gradelian sort of mistake of... Taking of, it at face value and not worrying about access? or Yeah, right, of not worrying about access and of, um, well, just of subordinating the prior. I mean, it's just a reversal of priority. It's... So maybe it's, it's taking, dilemma just is the opposition of empiricism and rationalism. Yeah. But in the context of mathematical With, truth. Right, of mathematical truth. Yeah, I think I that's, think that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well then, since we don't really have arguments between rationalists and empiricists today, it's a bit of a result. Well, what I, well I mean... I mean there, are, there are holdouts, like yeah. Ben Frassen or whatever. Oh, sure, yeah. But for the most part, there's a kind of fusion. Everybody has their own way of doing it. But, yeah, right, but right. But there is a, a, a happy middle, I think. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think all of the dominant views in philosophy of math today are kinds of fusions, whether they're structuralism or um, certain varieties of fictionalism, or uh, there's probably some other views. I think those are the, probably the biggest ones. Those are the biggest ones, but um, there's a third one. I just can't remember. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. So this is good. I mean, I think, I think it's... We need to keep coming back to that, because I, I think that uh, I'm very... I'm very sympathetic to arriving at some way to resolve Benasser's dilemma in a way that that is parallel to a rejection of straight up empiricism. Sure. And by by extension of straight, straight up rationalism. rationalism, yeah. Except that that's not where I started. No, of course, yeah. Okay. So let's move on and come back to that. Actually, we only have a little bit more to read, and then we can really go free form. Yeah. What would make such an assignment of the predicate true, the determination of the concept of truth? The explanation must proceed through reference and satisfaction, and furthermore, must be supplemented with an account of reference itself. But the defense of this last claim is too involved a matter to take up here. God damn it, he's doing it again. Well, that's when he referenced uh, Hartreefield. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that quote was out of order. We should have done it earlier. Yeah. Okay, well, but it's worth, it's worth reviewing a little bit. Um, the idea here is we get the truth from reference, and reference is going to come from a causal theory. Yeah. I don't know that that's argued for, but I, it's, it's something I accept. Mm-hmm. 
Well, in particular, just that the concept of truth has to do with things like reference and satisfaction in general, and not with proof. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. So it's really that those concepts are more closely tied than to, any of to, them are to proof. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, the next one. You want to read the next one? Yeah. So he says, even if it is granted that the truths of first-order logic do not stem from conventions, it might still be claimed that the rest of mathematics consists of conventions formalized in first-order logic. Okay, we stop right there. So this is a longer one, but I just want to interject by saying that this is the segue from this Bogosian. is the segue from Bogosian, right? Yeah. So what we what we learned from Bogosian is, I mean, in one sentence, that even if you give up on metaphysical analyticity, or rather, even if you give up on analyticity, aliquine, you only have to give up on so-called metaphysical analyticity, yeah. and you can still have something else which he coins uh, epistemic analyticity, where that is itself uh, given in some fashion or other, by what is typically called implicit definition. Though you have to be careful how to do it. Yeah. Right? In particular, you don't want to do it the way the conventionalists do it. Right. Okay. So we can review that, but um, but I just want to call that out before you finish this quote. We could start over. Because what Ben Astroff does here is say, maybe you think that you can get all of math from analyticity. But yeah. the problem is that that would make you a conventionalist. Yeah. But actually, we see another option there. Well, it's more complicated because of the epistemic analyticity. But That's I don't. Mean. But I don't know. I don't know that it saves conventionalism. No, it's not about saving conventionalism. Okay. It's about saving. Uh, well, what something like what Putnam called the modal mathematics as modal logic. Ah, sure. Where. It's just basically epistemic, epistemic analytic truths. Right. But I, the reason why I think it's important though is um, that it doesn't. What I meant when I said that it doesn't save conventionalism was, it doesn't save it metaphysically. I only. I think it only saves it epistemologically. I don't think it and saves that, conventionalism at all. Okay. Because I don't take implicit definitions to be conventional. Okay. Well, actually, is that true? No, maybe not. I mean, that's not what I mean. Yeah, what yeah. I mean is that conventionalism demands metaphysical analysis. Right, right. To yeah. be conventional as well. Yeah, oh, that's what you're saying. You're saying that yes. conventionalism is at most at the epistemic level, not level, but rather with respect to epistemic analyticity. Yeah. Or to put it another way, well, actually, to put it to the most it, directly way, yeah. uh, conventionalism cannot be a way of explaining truth, only a way of yes. explaining uh, that's, definition. That's exactly what I was going to get at. I was going to get at the idea that it only, I think, it only ultimately addresses half of the. Benasserif dilemma, the challenge. The knowledge side. Right, the knowledge side, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, basically, maybe that's the answer to the dilemma. You know, one side is handled by epistemic analyticity, and the other side remains untouched because it's a question of metaphysical analyticity. Okay, that doesn't really resolve it, but it, it's. It may be part way towards a solution. Yeah, in other words, it may be that. In other words, it may be that um, you can very well. I mean, in fact, Bogosian suggests as much that you can very well use the ordinary Tarski view about truth um, and have implicit definition um, as a mechanism for epistemic analyticity. Who says that? Bogosian. Yes. I mean, and there was, yeah, I mean, he's... Right, but yeah. not with respect to math. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he well, actually talk about Tarski's theory? He doesn't... No, but I mean, he's... But the way that he... I think it's implicit. Yeah, it's... 
seems because to be of the structure. I don't if you yeah, ever mentioned I it, but I don't think it does. No, but it seems implicit given the structure of how he's arguing. Actually, you know what? It's implicit in the way he talks about truth functions. Oh right, yeah, because that's yeah. effectively how you build up the recursion. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's just read this quote from the beginning. Even if it is granted. Oh, right, yeah. So even if it is granted that the truths of first-order logic do not stem from conventions, it might still be claimed that the rest of mathematics consists of conventions formalized in first-order logic. This view, too, is subject to the objection that such a conception of con concept of convention need not bring truth along with it. Indeed, it is clear that it does not. For, even ignoring more general objections, once the logic is fixed, it becomes possible that the conventions thus stipulated turn out to be inconsistent. Hence, it cannot be maintained that setting down conventions guarantees truth. In fact, this is a point that we talked about in the last episode, in when we talked about the fallibility. idea of fallibility, right? Yeah. yeah, that you might stipulate, uh, well, you might stipulate incorrectly. <laughs> right. I mean, it may be unlikely if you're a pretty normal somewhat rational human being but no no, no i don't think so i i, I think not. it happens all the time it just has to be complex yeah that's true yeah right right yeah you just basically get tangled up yeah if you get especially if probability is involved <laughs> <laughs> because everybody's terrible at probability yeah. basically <laughs> if you're stipulating <laughs> solutions to the monty hall problem right good you're, luck you're not gonna get it <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah so but if it does not guarantee truth what distinguishes what distinguishes those cases in which it provides for it from those in which it does not? Consistency cannot be the answer. To urge it as such is to misconstrue the significance of the fact that inconsistency is proof that truth has not been obtained. The deeper reason, once more, is that postulational stipulation makes no connection between the propositions and their subject matter. Stipulation does not provide for truth. At best, it limits the class of truth definitions or interpretations consistent with the stipulations. But that is not enough. But why not? Why not? See, okay. Because, again, it might, you might stipulate something that turns out to be inconsistent. Sure. I mean, I would go further than this. I mean, he says that it doesn't provide for truth. I would say just further that it doesn't provide for reference. And well, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, Bogosian didn't address. And no, but I will. Yeah. But I will. Okay. I, I want to say, okay, I haven't thought about this for weeks, but um, <laughs> <laughs> on the spot here. Um, I mean, this is why we're going to read Donalyn partly, right? And about theories of reference in general. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, so, all right, hold on. Okay, I think I know what I want to say. <clears throat> um, I agree that the truth is not given by the stipulations, right? Okay. The, the, the truth of a mathematical uh, proposition is not given by the stipulative implicit definitions that bring about the axioms... Um, yeah. All right. But, um,
But it doesn't mean that it's not true. No, I, I didn't. No, I know. I know. Okay. 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 Um, but, or rather, okay. I see. No, it does bring them about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but not by convention. Okay. So, all right. This is, this is complicated. I want to say that, um, so what I'm trying to lay out here is, is my theory, right? Yeah. Which is um, difficult. Uh, but but I, I think what I want to say is that the referent, okay, of of the reference relation, right? So yeah. Such as of the number three, is fixed by the convention, not the truth. Yeah, I think that's it. Yes. Hmm. That's it. Okay. Good. 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 So um, the implicit definition of the epistemic analyticity introduced by Boghossian gives us um, epistemic, um, the epistemic side. Okay, in other words, we know, uh, we know the truths to be true because the, because the implicit, because the, because the, because they follow from the implicit definitions that we adopted. Mm-hmm. But what makes them true is a different aspect of that implicit definition, namely the reference, yeah. which is itself also given by the convention. Because we are successfully fixing on the abstract object um, by the use of definite descriptions which uh, single out specific possible objects um, yeah yeah but then it sounds like you're giving up on the causal theory of reference for mathematics no I'm not either that or I'm not or either, that or, yes. ha- either okay. that or you have to give some sort of a reduction of descriptivism to Let's read the last quote and come back to it. To a causal theory. Let's let's read the last quote and come back to it. Okay. All right. Actually, no, let's do more. Let's read the last quote, (laughs) talk about that for a while. Yeah. Then introduce this episode. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Oh, yes. We should do that. And and then... At some point. Yeah. And then then let's start over because I I think this is too difficult for me to do against the context of what we just read. But I can just tell you more freeform what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And then we can relocate it against Ben Astor's complaint at the end of the paper. Yeah. I'd like to do the same. Okay. Good. So the last bit, this is the very last few sentences of Benasser's paper. He says, um, to clarify the point, consider Russell's off-sided dictum. Quote, the method of postulating what we want has many advantages. They are the same as the advantages of theft over honest toil. Unquote. Something which has come up in three, like two other papers we've read recently. <laughs> Apparently yeah. this was the thing, you know. It's, yes. in, it's in, what is it, Introduction to... Mathematical Philosophy. Yeah, Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy. Okay. On the view I'm advancing, this is Ben Astroff again, not Russell. On the view I'm advancing, that's false. For with theft, at least you come away with the loot. Whereas implicit definition, conventional postulation, and their cousins are incapable of bringing truth. They are not morally 
but they're not only morally but practically deficient as well. Okay. Hardy horror horror. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not impressed. I'm not uh, impressed. Okay. Because I I think that um, well. So what what is what he's saying here is that the postulation does not give you the loot. Right. Okay. And I suppose I have to just jump into it, right? So let's first introduce the episode. Okay, so what are we doing here? <laughs> we're, we're, first of all, it's follow-up from episode number three. Follow-up, yes. Oh, yes, right. We haven't done we'll follow-up do yet. Why don't we talk about what we want to do with follow-up? So We should, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as, as, as may have become evident, we have our favorite philosophers. We tend to favor people who are alive or recently dead. Um, or at least I do. Yeah, I'm, well, I mostly do as well. Yeah, yeah. With, because we have this crazy idea that there's been actual progress. No, <laughs> gasp! <laughs> and, and that we can learn more from people who themselves have learned something in their careers. Yeah. Um, hindsight, etc. Uh, <laughs> or perhaps we just happen to like the recent work. I don't know, whatever it is. So that's one. Um, but among our favorite philosophers are people like Patnam and Quine. Yeah. Uh, but among some of our greatest influences are philosophers like Syracuse of Hypercritical. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. <laughs> also an example podcast, which we are very proud to imitate in one small way, which is that we would like to follow the example of follow-up. I don't know if they invented this, but they may as well have. Oh, they, they talk about it at some point, who invented follow-up. I, yeah. I don't remember who it was, but yeah. I don't really care. I'm going to give the credit to Syracuse. He certainly was the pioneer if he wasn't the inventor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Right yeah, here. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the way they do follow up is it's it's like taking questions or comments that were sent in to them about the previous episode, and then they just t- briefly talk about them. Briefly, Ex- yes. Yeah, briefly, briefly can be the first two hours of a two and a half hour podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, the idea is that you must be thorough, right? Absolutely. You must say everything that you can think of worth saying response to those comments you received that you you know you deign to acknowledge um and only after you're done do you get to the supposed main content <laughs> right and the, and, and the big joke of course is that sometimes our follow-up is uh takes the up the whole episode. podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> they never get to the main content <laughs> uh, and and i'd like to i'd like us to do that as well obviously nobody's listening to us yet because we've just started but um if we start to get commentary we will follow up um that is, we will literally uh, try to address the questions and yeah, ideas. Yeah, like do additional comments. research and figure out exactly right. how to how to respond to it as though we were in actual real-time conversation. Um, and ultimately, we would like to invite people who are frequent contributors in this way to join us in real-time conversation. So the way to do it is to email us or visit our site. Or are we on Twitter? <laughs> no, I'm not going to use Twitter. Okay, I'm not either. Yeah, fuck that. But email, email yeah, works. Email, email uh, is good. You can also add a comment to the blog posting. Yeah. I, I wouldn't count on that, though, because we might delete comments we don't like. So email is best. Um, but I, I don't know. Is that right? I'm not, well, I'm not, we weren't sure if we were going to allow comments at all. I'm not sure. Yeah, let's just start with email and take it from there. Yeah. Uh, the emails would be, um, well, I guess Rodrigo at or Kenny at the middle of things.co. 
but right. I'm going to set it up so that anything at the middle of things.co is received by us. So oh, really? It's cool. easy to do. So don't, don't worry. people. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about that. Um, and, you know, be, be as thorough as you like or refer us to your own blog or you can send an MP3. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> if, if it's really cool, we might even give you a call. Um, and then the follow-up will just be uh, a one-sided Actually, a two sides of a three-sided conversation, right? Right, right. yes, because it'll be the two of us <laughs> and the email. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so this time we're not doing any follow-up from anybody who's written in, but we are following up on our own conversation <laughs> from the previous episode, which we, uh, we ran to an hour and a half, and now we've finished all the material that we wanted to cover, but we've only just begun to embark on actually... Engaging our own mutual understanding of, of these issues. Right. And that's what we're going to do now. And we're going to start with my trying to face up to Benassar's challenge directly with a proposal of mine, which is inspired largely by, well, the the reading of Bogosian in the previous, not the previous, the episode number two. Right. So, uh, okay. I suppose I should start at the beginning and say what I really think about abstraction and possible worlds. Just, just briefly. Okay. Okay. What I, my 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 idea basically is that. Oh, actually, no. Before that, uh, although we didn't read anything about Fields' fictionalism, right? I think, I think it's worth mentioning that because I, I do draw upon that a little bit. Okay. Right. So. Well, so, in some ways, I mean, in some ways, you starkly I, disagree with them. Okay, maybe I shouldn't bring them up at all. Yeah. I, I just wanted to drop the name in yeah. case anyone thinks I'm talking about that. I am, and I'm not. Uh, but but I, I shouldn't really give so much credit as a nod. Yeah. Okay, so that said, uh, what I want to say is that abstract objects, uh, such as sets and numbers, are really something like uh, entities of non-actual possible worlds. Uh, in particular, there is a possible world that consists of just the integers, there's another possible world that just consists of the points and lines and spaces of Euclidean geometry. There's another one that consists of just ZFC sets. Um, and then there's still other worlds that consist of any number of combinations of these various different domains. Um, and that when we speak mathematical truths, when we talk about mathematical reality, it's in the same spirit that we speak modally of what might have been. Okay, that's the foundation of the idea. Yeah. Now, I, I recognize that this is creating as many problems as it's solving. Uh, <laughs> because if the original problem was, how do we refer to something that has no causal connection to us? It's hardly a solution to say that it is even more remote than we initially thought. <laughs> right, yeah. But I have, I, have, I have ideas about that too. Uh, so what I have in mind is precisely what you earlier brought up as the fallback positions. Okay. So hmm. when we talk about the number two, semantically, it's about the possibility at that world at which there are only numbers. Assuming you're not uh, speaking of numbers in relation to sets and or other abstract objects. But for any given universe of discourse... It mm -hmm. is defining of an entire possible world. Okay. Okay. So when we talk about it, when we talk about 
say a simple addition it is semantically about the that possibility but um but we can do so only by inference from uh, a more realistic picture. So to give a really simple story, you add two apples to three apples and you get five apples. You say two plus three equals five. Uh, your knowledge of this truth is derivative of your knowledge about apples, but you're not talking about apples. You're talking about abstract possibilia. Now, the question is the shift. How do you how do you draw conclusions about the possibility when what you know or what you are caused to know and what you are causally referring to are the apples? And the answer is now borrowing from you uh, that they share a structure. In, in other words, um, you take the knowledge of apples and instead of addition in the abstract sense it's more like uh, fusion right sure the fusion of of the collections and you you strip away this is a central concept the stripping away where did this come up somebody else talked about stripping away kit fine kit fine yeah in a ted talk no yeah. less <laughs> I, I, that was I, incredible. I, I want to register here for the record that I do not watch tech talks. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. I happen to have seen this one, but I didn't see the red spot, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what I was looking at. Okay, it's not fair. Go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he talks about stripping away. So I'm not really sure what stripping away is, but it, it, it resonates for me. Like I think I have an idea of what stripping away might be. I'm not. I'm just not sure I can articulate it logically. Yeah. Or. or analytically nevertheless that's the basic idea you know something about apples and about fusions of collections and then you take this and you strip away uh, some attributes or aspects or properties of that to which you are referring mm -hmm. as an inference you might say an inference of abstraction yeah and what you arrive at makes reference to the possibility now there is no causal relation between the possibilia and uh, the the uh, referring names or descriptions of the resultant abstract representation. But there is a causal relation between the less abstract representation about apples and fusions, and then the resulting abstract representation. So there is there is causation there. It's just not causation to uh, driven by the semantics directly okay one. okay that's one so that sure. gives you knowledge but not reference right yeah well i mean well the idea being that you know in virtue of what you know about apples but it that, but but it doesn't give you knowledge of possibility in particular um hmm. i'm just conceding that not enough has been said. That's no, it. no, but I mean, but I'm, well, I'm puzzled about a couple of things. One is just... Well, let me finish the thought, because there's okay. only one more element. Okay, yeah, sure. And that is, if, if there isn't a causal reference from the represent, from, to the representation from the possible objects that are the numbers... Yeah, the things represented. The things represented, then how is it, um, how is it fixed? How is that reference fixed? Yeah. And here is where I bring a 
Well, I don't have the name for this because I haven't read the Donalyn recently. Mm-hmm. But here is where I bring a specific use of, or you might say a pragmatics for descriptions. Mm-hmm. Namely, that these descriptions, because they describe objects at possible worlds, are not either true or false uh, in the sense that they might... I'm going to take that back, but okay, I screwed up. Okay, I'll, st- I'll, st- I'll start over. <laughs> Philosophy is hard. Yeah, yeah. Philosophy is hard. It's not that they're... Okay, never mind they're being true. Of course they're true or false. That's not what I meant. Um, yeah. But, okay, so, so let, me, let me go back to descriptions. So with descriptions, um, if you say the present king of France, right? Yeah. Uh, on one reading, um, no matter what else you say, that he's bald or whatever, um, that's false. Right. On another reading, it's neither true nor false. That's the sense in which I was talking about. And the other reading is neither true nor false because it, having failed to the presupposition yeah. that there even is a present king of France, mm-hmm. that no matter what else you might say, it fails to be either true or false. Okay, that's, that's the context from which I'm trying to make use of descriptions in a different way. What I want to say is that reference to abstract objects, seeing as to how they are reference to the parts of non-actual possible worlds cannot be causal, okay? But they can function in a way similar to the Strassonian reading of definite descriptions that requires a presupposition to be satisfied. Except that in this case, it's not so much that the presupposition has to be true as that, that the presupposition is made to be true in that what you are referring to just is those worlds and parts of those worlds for which the presupposition is true. Yes, I think that's right. I think I got it out. So I'll say it again. Okay. So if if you're using if you use the number three, what are you doing? Well You mean the numeral three. Yes, of course. <laughs> Sorry. If it's you use... too easy. It's really easy to do that. <laughs> the dog <laughs> Begins with a head and ends with a tail. Right. Not with the letter D (laughs) and the letter G. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, What was I saying? Oh, yeah. The numeral three. Yeah. If you use the numeral three um, to refer, how do you fix the reference to a possible object? Well, what you do is you identify the presupposition that corresponds to the definite description that would stand in for the name. Because I think that's what happens actually in mathematical objects. Though there may be names, such as the numeral three, mm-hmm. really these are all just uh, abbreviatory for definite descriptions. In this case, um, uh, something to the effect of uh, the application of the successor three times. Mm-hmm. Okay, But you don't actually use the numeral three, of course, in the definite description. You just have a, you know, a three times repetition of some logical form. If I follow? Okay. Well, I mean the presupposition. No, no, no. The presupposition is just that is drawn out from the definite description. So the definite description is something like um, the X such that there is a Y such that there is a Z such that there is a W where Z is the successor of W, Y is the successor of Z, and X is the successor of Y, and W has no successor or something like that or is not the successor of anything. Okay. Yeah, just all that, right? Yeah. You take that whole thing, put it in a, put it in a definite description. Then there is a corresponding presupposition. The corresponding presupposition is that there is such a thing. 
That's all. Mm. Well, it just is that statement that you that you. Well, except that that's not a statement. That's just it a, is. It's a it's the that there exists. No, well, but it. Yes, the the, the 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 second statement I made, namely that there is such a thing, that is a statement. Yes. No, I meant with the quantification, the quantifiers. Those are the there is is. No, no, they aren't. They are. They are. They, I don't. I don't know the technical name for this, but it's, it's, um, it's quantifiers that have the, not there exists. It's the x such that, which is then contextually analyzed as. Wait, sorry. What did you say? It's the there. It's the e's that you use an iota and then the variable. You never seen this before. I'm not sure I have. So, so basically, if you say the present king of francs, that's analyzed as. Uh, there exists a there is an X such that it is a present king of France. This is a this is a notation Russell invented, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah, it's just a shorthand for the longer clauses with identity statements, right? Yeah, but I'm it's also sure. it's also that you have a noun, you have a noun, uh, sorry, well, a subject, uh-huh. and then you have a predicate, and then the predicate is on the outside of the definite description. Mm. Is bald applied to? The present king of France, but then after the analysis, the predicates on the inside. You say there exists an X such that X is a present king of France for all Y. If it is a present king of France, X equals Y, and X is bald. Mm-hmm. But the is bald is inside the quantifier. Okay. So it's like you move the predicate inside of the quantifier uh-huh. by changing the quantifier from a the to a there are or there is. Yeah. You follow? Yeah. Okay. So um, this will all be in the show notes. Not? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, maybe we could. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, so the presupposition is that there is such an object. And now, which world does it pick out? Well, uh, it doesn't pick out a single world. Okay. For instance, they could pick out either the world and its part that contains only integers. Mm-hmm. But it could also pick out the world of ZFC with uh, with the Zermelo rendering of numbers as sets. Mm-hmm. Right? It could pick out that world. Um, it pragmatically may be determined which world is being picked out. But it doesn't really matter. Um, what matters is that it pick out some set of worlds, and for each of those worlds, it pick out some particular object in it. Okay. Okay. And so what is my point here? My point is that the presupposition is made true by the selection of a world, rather than it either simply being true or not as a presupposition. Yes, that's what it is. In other words, the interpretation of a mathematical statement picks out the world so as to make the presuppositions of its referential descriptions true, as opposed to it being evaluated for truth at some pre-identified world. That's my theory. Okay. Hmm. Now, this is very similar to your idea, um, except you're just not involving modality explicitly. Instead, you're saying that you're referring to any of the various things in the actual world such that that thing 
is in relation to other things such that a certain structure is satisfied. Right. I'm doing exactly the same thing, except that I'm not limiting myself to the actual world. And more importantly, I'm singling out specifically those very sparse worlds at which little else is happening. Mm-hmm. And I use happening loosely, right? Because obviously these are not worlds with temporality or anything like that. Um, but at which there are, there's, there's, at which there isn't much else, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, because that is what I regard as the nature of, the rea- of, of abstract reality. Hmm. I mean, I think it's important when we talk about math that we, um, that we have an account of the abstraction because I think this is where, the, oh, this is important. This is where the objectivity comes from, okay? Like if we, if we say that there's something in actuality that has the structure of the omega sequence, yeah. and we take that to be the referent of a number theoretic proposition, mm-hmm. what do we say if it turns out that that which we thought we had taken ourselves to be referring to turns out not to have that structure? Does the sentence, is the truth of the sentence now in question? Or is what it referred to now in question? It, it seems to be an unstable understanding. Whereas if the world that is picked out itself is fixed by the presuppositions, then there isn't really any question of fallibility. This explains the certainty of mathematics. It is essentially the same as the certainty of logic, except that it involves reference to possible objects at worlds of abstraction. Now, I'm using the word abstraction differently than I think a lot of people use it. it's not so much about the process of abstraction. Okay. It's rather what is at the limit of the abstraction process mm-hmm. after all concreteness has been removed or stripped away. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? Sure. Okay. That's it. That's my theory. Knock it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. So there's, there's quite a bit of things yes. um, to talk about. Uh Okay. So first of all, I don't see how the presuppositions of mathematical statements can be made to uh, to refer to what they refer to by our stipulation of the mathematical statements. Basically, because I take reference to be causal, I guess. But you don't so, think it's always causal? Like, what about descriptions? I think, oh no, I think that in that case as well. I think that ultimately, the references of even our predicate terms are derived from the oh, I give you actual that. properties. No, 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 yeah, I, but those are those are the predicates. No, but it's, but it's the combination. Like, I gave you that the predicates yeah. uh, get their, you might say, satisfaction conditions uh, causally. Right. But... I don't think that means that, that, so for example, if I say the cat is on the mat, yeah, but the cat is not actually on the mat, mm-hmm. right? Um, but there is a cat and there is a mat. 
but there is a cat and there is a mat, mm -hmm. then you don't get the truth of the cat is on the mat, mm -hmm. or rather the falsehood. Or actually, let me do this again. Let's say the cat is... Uh, wait. Uh, let's say the cat is not on the mat. Okay. Okay. And yeah. No, no. Let's say the cat is on the mat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then you say the cat is not on the mat. All right. Okay. Um, the sentence is the cat is not on the mat. The truth of the falsehood of that... Ah, oh, shit. I'm confused. Um, I'm not sure what you're trying to say. Yes, okay. Suppose the cat is not on the mat, and the sentence is also the negation. The cat is not on the mat. Uh -huh. The truth of that sentence doesn't come from the cat's being on the mat negated. Okay? There's no causal... There's no causal connection to the cat's being on the mat. Since the cat isn't on the mat, yeah. Right. But there's also no causal connection to the cat's not being on the mat because... Well, that's not an event. It's it's a non-event, right? Mm -hmm. There is, of course, a causal connection from the cat and from the mat, and perhaps even of the relation of being on, in some, in, 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 in some, you know, some fashion or other. Sure. But uh, I mean, certainly, I have experienced, I've had experiences of things being on things, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the meanings of my terms, in some sense, come from that. Yeah. Right. By the way, have you ever wondered how the paint on the wall is nothing like the cat on the mat? <laughs> <laughs> it's a different on the... Yeah. Right, I know. Yeah. It's very, very troubling. Anyway, um, I, I think what, what I'm trying to say is that extensions and names can be given their reference causally without their combinations having to be similarly referential. So, are you trying to say that, like, in some sense, the reference of a sentence? Yeah, I guess, is, I guess you're right. That's it. I mean, it's yeah. So there's some things here, right? Yeah. So the reference of a sentence. I mean, I'm not even sure how I feel about the reference of a sentence. Well, I mean, is that's... it to, is it to truth? Is it to the state of affairs of the cat being on the mat? Is it to, or maybe it just doesn't. Maybe there just isn't a reference to, of the, of a full sentence. Um, right. And sentences just are true or false, but that doesn't mean it refers to true, right? Like Frege thought. Um, I I suppose I probably I, I don't know. I I think I'm of different minds on different days of the week as to whether or not there is whether or not it's referring to the state of affairs or whether or not the full sentence just doesn't refer. Um, I don't know if I, I really know. wanted to bring that up. The I, reason, yeah, right. I, I I was working from an intuition, but. Now I'm. I'm this is like an you know yeah. I know it's this a thing. It's a, a yeah, thing. it's a thing. Yeah. It's called right. the problem of predication. I think is what it's called. Mm, I never. I it's know. Davidson's last book, published uh, posthumously. Oh, I didn't read it. Yeah, I only started. I haven't read. I haven't finished yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I don't know how much more. Or it's what uh, Frege and Russell call the problem of the unity of the proposition. I think. <laughs> I think I know how we wanted to end this. Wait, what time did we have? We've gone an hour. Okay. Okay. So we can go a little further. Uh, I think... Well, actually, I want to talk about how we're going to end it, and then we'll continue in the middle. Okay. Okay. Um, so we both introduced this and end it in the middle. Right. <laughs> and we start and end at the... What, how does that work? Anyway, it's convoluted. <laughs> uh, so I think we're going to end this by saying that um, 
that in some respects, uh, this might be too ambitious, but what I want to say, what I want us to say, yeah. is that in some respects, uh, what I'm trying to do in holding on to both Platonism and formalism, and what you're trying to do in exploring structuralism, yeah. agrees on a series of points, but disagrees on the ontology of possible worlds and their parts. Yeah, surely, yeah. But it also disagrees in some sense on the... on the language or on the... It's hard to say exactly what Oh, but no, it's... I remember now. Okay, yeah. so now I get where the, this cat business... I, I shouldn't have brought up that example. It's not important. Okay. But, but what... Okay, so... 2 plus 3 equals 5... Yeah. Treated intuitionistically or formalistically, mm-hmm. right? Gives you something to talk about, right? But it isn't necessary to uh, no. no. That's not going to work. Yeah. Oh, no, no, yes, 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 yes. Okay, good. Yes, 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 yes. Um, This is a shot in the dark, okay, but I think you have to go with me on this. Okay. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we'll see. Not that I'm entirely still of the Lewisian persuasion when it comes to possible worlds. Yeah. But. Or descriptions. I mean, he does talk about descriptions as well. True, but I don't know what he said. I don't know. I haven't read formal descriptions. Um, The elements of the formal system that correspond to the number two yeah I guess the numeral numeral two two. (laughs) well but not just the numeral two the Roman numeral two as well Well, and in Chinese it's the it's like a sideways Roman numeral two okay haha okay Okay. yeah that um, that that will be like the counterpart of the number two of the possible world that contains just numbers uh huh because of the resemblance relation. Ah. And the reason I think you have to go along with this is because regardless of what your understanding of possible worlds is, the very need to be able to speak to, uh, or rather refer to uh, objects um, at other possible worlds mm-hmm. requires relying on in the case of mathematics, at the very least, and perhaps outside of mathematics, some kind of resemblance relation, mm-hmm. if not a yeah, counterpart relation, yeah. if yeah. not a counterpart relation, yeah, a similarity, some kind of resemblance relation between uh, counterparts, yeah, without wanting to speak to whether these are actually identity relations or not. I don't think that's important for what we're talking about. Presumably not. Yeah, but yeah. So, but to the extent that it is, right, identity, to the extent that counterparts are a substitute or proxy for identity, then that that is how we have knowledge of the number two. Our knowledge of the numeral two, just as knowledge of the counterpart of the number, but at the actual world, in virtue of it having the same structure or having a resemblance to the number. Now this is why it starts to look exactly like your idea. Because all you're doing is cutting out the possible worlds. 
what you're saying is, well, if structure is what matters, if structure is what gives us gives us that counterpart or transworld identity relation, uh-huh. why not just say that you're talking about the structure? Is what I think you would respond with. And what I would say to that is, um, since you're not here to actually speak for yourself, something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, what I would say in response to that, in response to that, is the reason you want to leave in those abstract objects is because of uh, for the same reason that structuralism can't get away with saying that it's relata all the way down or relations all the way down you need something to relate yeah but I don't think that you need anything more than the concrete entities in this world or any other world I agree that you don't need anything beyond this or any other world but I do think you need something beyond this world yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm not sure quite how I feel about the modal issue because I'm also somewhat sympathetic with Putnam's modal modal view. Oh, but he doesn't actually explain. Of course. Get, but then there's nothing to be sympathetic with respect to this question. Well, he doesn't explain not just what possible worlds are, but in particular whether or not um, the tide of structuralism isn't maybe so obvious either. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, I think, well, let me just try try to speak to my view, I guess, which, (laughs) which is something like, well, okay. So I think something like that, the necessity of mathematical truths is, oh, oh, modality. Yes, I know. Okay. Right. Well, I know I want to bring in, doing this on purpose. Um, just speaks to the very same structures in different worlds. Which other worlds? Well, and well, that's an interesting point. So I think that it depends on the context of utterance. So I think it depend. I think that what worlds you're considering depend upon um, They, I think they depend upon what you're, what you stipulate to be true. In, in the conversational context, like what you implicitly take to be true, about what you're about about the mathematical statements you're making, or about the mathematical structures you're talking about. So, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that there is. I don't think that you need to have abstract entities because I think that it's enough to, I mean, abstract in the sense of, yeah, well, in the sense of entities that don't exist in the way we typically take concrete entities to exist. Um, because. You mean otherworldly entities? Hmm? Well, what I mean is otherworldly entities that um, would not be concrete. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, Platonic entities. Yeah, right. Yeah, platonic entities, exactly. Because you... Well, I think you're just speaking to the very same structures that you're speaking to uh, actually, but that what modality gives us is, um, well, more structure than we actually have, basically. Um, What I mean is there are structures... 
that the yeah. objects in this world are a part of, right, in other worlds that they aren't in this world. Right. Um, so I think that's what modality gives us. The, in other words, what modality gives us is more structures than we actually have. Um, right, and, and I would agree with that. Yeah. But let me, let, me, let me turn this back to the criticism of structuralism that, sure. that I think we're both sympathetic to when it comes to philosophy science. Yeah. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I, st- I mean, I guess I have a very unsophisticated objection to structuralism, but I've never been able to get past it. Sure. And that is that structures are, are theoretical entities. No, as I wait, start over. Structures are entities of a theory, not entities spoken of by a theory. They are basically the. Um, they are, well, no, I guess not. It's the relation. Okay, never mind. Start over. Uh, <laughs> scratch that. It's, it. The problem is the ontology of relations. Okay. Okay. The question is, can relations subsist independently of what's being related? Yeah, and it's not even just relations, it's the... Um, I take structure just to be a, a word for a complex of relations. Uh, yeah, so for example... I guess I, I guess I usually think of it as a relation of those relations. I don't... Don't get Kierkegaardian on me. <laughs> no. No, but I mean, you, you see it in Lady Min and stuff. They talk about not just things, but things, properties, and relations must go in favor of structures. They do use use that phraseology or whatever. I I can't even imagine what that's about. I I, I take, look, I'll give an example. So if if succession is a relation, yeah. Okay. Then the omega sequence is a structure. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's Uh, a complex of relations, it's a a sequence. I guess I don't think that it is a structure. Uh, hmm, Maybe this is just. Maybe this is maybe there's an issue here. Like maybe there's two different usages of the word structure, because I, I think that it has a structure that many other uh, there are many other things that also have a structure. No, no, no. Or well, no, 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 maybe no, no, maybe no, no. possibly. But... Omega sequence I take to be the structure that many things have. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're using the same. Yeah. We, we yeah, weren't yeah. using the word omega sequence. In the yeah. Same right. Okay. But we were using the word structure in the same way. Yeah. Uh, so, if if something like for example. The Roman numerals, perhaps on a particular inscription, mm-hmm. right? Um, right. Have the stru- have the omega sequence structure, then they have the same structure as the Arabic numerals written elsewhere. Uh-huh. Specific concrete instance of an ins- of an inscription, right? Obviously not infinite in either case, but uh, you know up to a point. Um, so. What I want to say is that we can't speak of these structures, the structure that they have, independently of what it is that is being structured. Okay? Um, hmm. And that is the function that abstract reality play, uh, plays. And that if we want to focus our attention on the structure shared by all of these realities, but in a way that is not limited by the existence of any such structured reality, then 
we can simply speak of a possible world uh, whose occupants, I don't know how to say that, you know, at which there exist only entities that minimally satisfy this structure, or leave out the minimally, that satisfy that structure. Yeah. In other words, satisfy that complex of relations. Um, there isn't any, I think, uh, stronger necessity to speak of possible entities as against actual entities. It's just the convenience of not having to identify anything in actuality that satisfies that structure, given that we're already speaking hypothetically. <laughs> it's not like you have a specific actual structure, sorry, actual structured reality in mind. Uh-huh. You're just speaking, I mean, suppose you're talking about the integers, right? Um, well, to make it easy, a finite but, set yeah. of integers. Um, you don't have any specific sequence of stars or a sequence of molecules or whatever. You're speaking hypothetically. But to speak hypothetically, in my mind, is already to speak modally. And if you're already speaking modally, why not just fix on a world, just one world, possible world, non-actual possible world, and speak of its entities as the ones of your concern, so that you can then have definite descriptions with single reference, and not this confusion of unity referencing referencing plurality. It's it's just a way to narrow the conversation uh, and speak mathematically independently of its application. It's a way of doing pure math. I'm trying to motivate. Mm-hmm independently of the problem of having to speak to causal reference to other worlds. I'm just trying to motivate first why we would want to do this. Mm-hmm. First, by eliminating a distracting and irrelevant plurality. You know, the any number of objects that can play the number three. Right? That's one. And second, by insisting that to even speak of these hypothetical abstract realities that satisfy some structure is already to speak modally so we may as well just go modal from the start and all modal talk is going to involve reference to possibilia to which we have no causal relation so it's not a problem for math in particular it's just a problem for modal talk generally and now in response to that question I want to suggest that we do this by way of resemblance. Now, I don't have a theory yeah. about how to do this, but uh, it's not difficult to extrapolate from metonymy generally, right? Hmm. You don't, you know, you, what are examples of metonymy? Uh, like, you know, you say, I've got wheels, when you really mean the car. You speak of the whole by speaking to its part. Oh, right, yeah. Well, similarly here, you speak of a part by referencing the... No, no. You speak of a whole by referencing its part. So you reference the numeral three, but you're really referring to the full set of objects, including actual and possible, that have the omega sequence structure and the third particular in that structure as playing the role of the number three. 
Mm-hmm. But then in turn, by a second metonymic device, yeah. you're referring only to those of pure abstract worlds. Mm-hmm. Worlds at which there is no um, temporality, um, causation, or any of the other complications that remove us from what we recognize in mathematical reality as its objectivity, universality, necessity, and so on. Mm-hmm. Something Benasra pleads out in his dilemma, or his desiderata, is we also want mathematics to be, well, Putnam includes it. We want it to be objective, right? But I right. say more than that. We want it to be necessary. Sure. We want it to be universal. It's not just enough for it to be objective. I mean, the sun no, is yeah. yellow, and that's objective. Right. It's not universal. It's only about the sun. Yeah. It's not necessary. Could have been a red giant. Yeah. But in math, um, maybe Putnam didn't say this because he doesn't want to say that. Maybe he wants to say that, you know, it's contingent like everything else, a la coin, etc. But I, no, I don't think that's true. Yeah, I don't think he wants to say that. No. But but somebody might. Sure. Right. But not yeah. me. Like I want to say. It is as necessary as anything in logic, pure logic. And so something needs to be said about well, but yeah. Whence this The question purity. is whether that's the that necessity is distinct from No, it's definitely modal. I mean that's No no no, that's not what I'm at. Whether it's distinct from the necessity of uh, well, the necessity of of empirical identities or yeah. In other words, yeah, no. Is it, it a different kind? It has to. Yeah, I, I say okay. Yes, good question. Yeah, and I say yes. It has to be distinct uh, or the same. Dis- well, um, I mean, it's the same kind of necessity. Okay, but but it's it's there is a there's a difference mm-hmm. because uh, at the actual world there are no necessities that aren't nomological. That is, there are no necessities that aren't already within the context of. Um, holding fixed some physical law or some other natural law. Well, no, just the identity ones are. Oh, well, yeah, but those are just logical necessities. But they're not logical in the sense that... I mean, they're not, log- they're not logical necessities in the way that uh, P or not P is a logical necessity. No, not in the same way, but it's still... Okay, so I was excluding... Those are, those are generally considered logical necessities. Fine. As opposed to... I understand. Yeah, okay. Sure. I, I, but I was excluding... The necessity of necessities of identity. Um, the mm. necessities of mathematical truth are not merely the necessities of identity. They are necess- they are the, they are necessities born of uh, the reference of mathematical truth yeah. being purely abstract. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I realize I'm jumping a lot. Yeah. But my point is, I'm jumping on to islands that you already are committed to stepping on. Right, but we seem to have different views about, I don't know, either what makes them up or the direction no, of I explanation. Don't so. or... I don't think so. I mean, don't, do you admit that there are possible worlds that are stripped of all concrete objects? No. Okay, so there's... A... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that I didn't take long. No, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't take long, yeah. Uh... Like I said, I don't think that... Uh... Yeah, no, I don't think there are any such things. And I don't think that any such things are required in order for. I agree for that a, for for 
mm-hmm. the sort of structuralist view of math that I have. I, I agree that they're not required for structuralism. What I worry yeah. about with respect to structuralism is that it doesn't speak to the unity of the referent. The unity of the referent. Yeah, the number three does not refer to a plurality. It refers to one object. Sorry, the numeral three. The numeral three, yeah. yeah. It refers to an object. Right, yes. Okay, good. So... I mean, I'm actually... I do I'm have... I'm actually following Ben Astroff where he says, if the number three is a set, it is a particular set. Of course, Well, yeah. I'm just not reducing the sets. Yeah. But I'm holding on to the sentiment. I'm saying, if the number three is one number, uh-huh. it's got to be one particular number. Yeah. Not any number of numbers. Well, but it can't be... Then it can't be any number of counterparts. Yes, Right. Okay. That's why you're trying to say there's only one counterpart that it would be. Well, for any given world. I mean, remember, you can have identity but, across but, worlds. This is, I mean, this is a different issue. Well, don't mix this up. Let's just say everything I'm not sure I just it said. Is. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure. It, well, I, mean, I, believe, I believe it is. Okay. Um, let's just say, just to simplify things, that I was only speaking against at a particular world. Yeah. So, the number three. Whatever it is, has to be most one thing mm-hmm. at any given world. Right. Yeah, I mean, right, yeah, because it's, it's a singular term. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. That's all I'm saying. Structuralism sure. doesn't speak to that. No, not, um, you're right that it doesn't. Um, and, that, well, and, you know, to its, uh, to our credit, we haven't read any structuralism other than the Benasserif, <laughs> other than Benasserif's, uh, Prologue to structuralism. <laughs> I mean, we could but, just leave it there. We could just say the problem with structuralism is that one, and the problem with. In fact, this is a general problem for structuralism, isn't it? In a way, yeah, like it applies it's, to Lady May as well. The thing, I, the problem I've always had with structuralism is they want to. I think they're too glib about. Um, well, about about saying, um, you know, everything must go, or there aren't any objects. Except oh, the but, structures. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, oh, but there are electrons. Or oh, oh, but you know, three is a prime number. Oh, well, right? Benasserf does the same thing. Benasserf right? does the same thing, right? But I think it's too glib to simply leave it at that and not tell a much better story about how you're not equivocating. I see. Um, I mean, because on the face of it, it is just equivocation, of <laughs> right? Um, I, I think it's going to take a much more sophisticated view than than. Well, at least we've ever read in Lady Men, in Lady Men but um, my own my own prejudices about it are that it's resolved um, in a contextual way, and that um, no, because the context, that, what, what kind of context are you talking about? It's not. A, what about pure math? Does pure math have a context? Yes. What is the context there? It's just the set of things that are. Um, mutually taken by mathematicians to be true, right? I mean, it's this set... I mean, that's just the way the context is defined by Snellnecker, right? It's, uh, or it's the set of worlds that satisfy the, those beliefs or whatever, right? Oh, but wait, hold on a second. Uh, I thought you were trying to do this without modal logic. No, I'm not trying to do this without modal logic. I'm just trying... I mean, because I do believe that mathematical statements are also necessary, or necessarily true, rather. True, yeah, okay. Um, so I think that has to... Oh, I see what you're that saying. That has to enter the picture no, no, somewhere. No, I, I see what you're saying. So, but, yes, yes, modality, but the referent remains actual. The referent remains actual. Um, 
but which but which structure you might be referring to with respect to uh, some bunch of actual objects, whether it be some actual structure they have or some possible structure they have, will be determined by the context, which is why you get uh, which is why you get issues where there is an adequate structure to have solutions to certain equations or why there aren't points where certain lines meet. Um, but when you, when you, in some sense, expand the context, um, you speak to more possibilities than you were speaking to before. That is, you speak to more possible structures of things, of actual things, than you were before. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah. So it's like the very same. Are you saying? Are you saying that the the use of the definite description is a bit illusory? Um, because you were actually talking about pluralities. R- yeah, I suppose I am. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and this is an attempt to be in keeping with the idea that. Um, this goes back. It's to not the, any. Pro- this goes back to the old idea that the number three refers to the set of all sets with cardinality three. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just Russell's definite yes, description. Sir. Yes, right. On that. Of what it is. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, maybe my view is not so far from that, but modalizing it and um, just emphasizing that um, well, that it isn't about the sets, but is about. Um, how the natural relations of those objects in whatever world they are in um, they all exhibit the same structure. I get, yeah, I think I get it. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, I think I know how I'm supposed to combine Platonism and formalism. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so the Platonism merely comes from the reliance on some kind of possible world semantics. Okay. You know, the, the Platonic realm just is those worlds that are at which there are only the objects that are the reference of mathematical truth where mathematical truth is characterized by its reference being fixed by the presuppositional technique that I described okay it's formalist to the extent that we can only um we can only um, we can only know these truths by by studying the counterparts mm-hmm. of those abstract objects, where these counterparts are typically marks on paper. Yeah, though they can also be in the mind, I suppose. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Yeah. And so the blend of the two views just comes down to what that resemblance relation might be, what that counterpart relation might be, effectively. Right. So, what I'm really speaking of, I guess the heart of the idea is that there is a, after a fashion with Lewis, but obviously it's, it's you know, it's a variation. Yeah. Um, there's a counterpart relation between the abstract and the concrete. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would say that this is more Platonist 
than the typical mathematical playlist. Because mm. this is the very thing that he's talking about when he's talking about the partaking of the form. Hmm. It's the resemblance between the ideal and the apparent. Where here, by ideal, we mean the possibility of a purely abstract world, and by apparent, we mean concrete reality. Yeah. Though I'm not really saying it's apparent. That's just played out. Right. Right. I think that was probably just lost in translation. I'm not sure he meant anything different from what I'm saying. So, yeah, that's that's basically the idea. All I really have to do is talk about resemblance independently of causality. Because to the extent that it depended on causality, you'd have a regress. Sure. So perhaps one of the main differences between our views, well, there's a couple, but... Um, I think you have to do the same thing. Too. One, one is just our view about causality. The second is the fact that um, <laughs> yes, your... Yes, true. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, that is the fact that your, your, uh, your modal views are more centered around counterpart theory and, and, uh, well, yeah, and the counterpart relation than mine are. Well, I don't know. I, I, I want to be ecumenical about that. Like, I, okay. I, I want to say that uh, it's not nonsense to talk about identity across worlds. Sure. But as long as it's done really carefully sure. and without Kripkean essentialism. Yeah. You know, as long as we're relying strictly only on logical identity and, yeah. and some such tricks that I haven't really thought very much about. Yeah. We should look at that book. The Nathan Salmon book. Yes, actually, you're right. Yes, that's yeah. what we should look at to get to the next stage there. Um, yeah, because I, I mean, I don't want to accept any, pretty much any of the Kripkean uh, essentialist claims either. Mm-hmm. At least none that are trying to say something like there are essential properties. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. The only yeah. the only property I want to accept as essential is self identity. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And. Um, So, the reason I think we have to fall back on counterparts, even if we want to be more openly um, cross-world for identity relations, that is, even if we want to go there... um, There is a world at which I had a twin brother, but I'm identical to both of the brothers. But they're not identical to each other. And since identity is transitive, this can't really be identity in the ordinary sense. Uh-huh. And yet it functions as identity in many modal truths. You understand? Is that too fast? Yeah, maybe I'm not sure. Okay, so if you yeah, there are these disjunctive twin examples, right? Like, oh, I just came up with it. I mean, I, okay. I guess they do talk about this, do they? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah. Well, okay, so you you have, you have no twin brother at this world, but there's yeah. a world at which you have a twin brother. Right. Which one are you identical to? Yeah, that's the disjunction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I would say you're identical. If you're identical to one, you're also identical to the other. Well, you... but you can't be identical to both. Uh huh. So, therefore, this isn't really identity we're talking about. In other words, the right way to say this is, 
they are both you are a counterpart to both of them but they aren't counterpart to you counterpart is not symmetric uh-huh yeah, so we're we're definitely gonna have to talk about possible worlds and and counterpart theory because I'm because I'm very willing to um, accept a certain undecidedness or of the statement. Um, not a yeah. Um, what I mean is, you when when you asked me the question, you asked you said there are worlds at which. I mean, I'm now using I instead of you, but. Um, there are worlds at which I have a twin, but but the I isn't the twin. I mean, the identity, the distinction is already there. Well, they're both twins. No, no. <laughs> I am at that world, and I have a twin. He's not. He's not me. Oh my god! But you're asking if you were to then abstract from the names, which one would you be, right? How would I determine that? And I don't. I just don't think that without any other information supposed about the world that you, you can make that determination. Yes. But I'm perfectly satisfied with that. <laughs> well, what do you mean you're satisfied? I mean, I don't see that there's any problem. Oh, I see. Sure. Um, well, but then the question is, are you identical to either? Yeah, one or the either. Yeah, one or the other. I mean, One I or the other. Right, but not both. I mean, because then there wouldn't be two. <laughs> but if you're identical to one, are you not by the same... No. I mean, remember, yes, this is complicated, because I, I simply don't think that you... I mean, I think you're stipulating the identity. You, the, I think that the way that transworld identity works is we stipulate ourselves or, Good. Some no, entity, exactly or, some, or some entity to be the same this, in some other world. This is exactly what I want to say. Yeah, this is exactly what Kripke says. He says we stipulate identity. I stole the words from him. I should have said that in quotes. Mm. I mean, I, I literally stole the words from him. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but also I think he rejects Leibniz's law. So this is a more complicated discussion. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. But yeah. okay, take, take, suppose the world is the world of sets. Okay. There's nothing in this world except sets. But I'm, I mean, I don't even I'm it's sure I know just, what that means. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, is it really so hard? Yes. It, it, why? <laughs> why? I mean, we already speak of a world of, uh, like, a domain of discourse, right? Yeah. Okay, we'll just call the world a domain. Okay. It's just another word yeah. for world. Okay, this is fine. Okay. Well, okay. Uh, yeah, right. It's important though because um, a universe because discourse. because Kripke and Lewis use the world use the word world differently, and uh, it's just yeah, you just have to be careful about that. So yeah, domain of discourse. Sure, that's fine. No, but I, I, look, I mean, Lewis. He takes it very literally. Yes, he does, and that's fine. Yeah, L Lewis, it's fine. Yeah, Lewis has has got something going on, right? Uh -huh. But but Kripke's. Logic, right, is right. supposed to be good for everybody. Right. Right. So I mean world in that sense. Okay, sure. All right. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. But it, and but additionally... I just wasn't sure because I know how Lucian you are. But... I'm only Lucian in inspiration, but I'm not... I see. I'm not... I don't really know how far he can carry me. Yeah. And how far I'm willing to be carried. Right. I'm not really sure about that. Um, all I know is as long as QML works, I'm cool. Okay. Okay. And so, 
I want to say that we have to read that book. We have to finish, <laughs> finish reading the Bodo Logic book. You know why? Because in like the second to last chapter, he goes through a way of giving counterpart semantics to QML instead, no, know, of, instead of giving the frame semantics. <laughs> I was thinking we could rename the podcast to TMTR. Yeah, right. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, there's way too much to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, th- I think uh, what I want to say is Suppose you have a, a world that is just the sets, call it a domain, call it a universe of discourse, whatever. Um, the identification of three, the number three, the identification of the number three with uh, some set yeah. could be either the Von Neumann one or the Zermelo one. Mm. And this is like the twin brothers. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm drawing an analogy there. Mm-hmm. And since you can stipulate which one you're talking about, um, then that's what is affected by the presupposition of the definite description and what guarantees uh, the truth provided you have consistency. Mm-hmm. Because if the truth relies on the reference and the reference is given by the stipulation, then you're not stipulating the truth, you're only stipulating the reference. Anyway, that's my story. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay, that was 15 minutes shy of two hours. Okay. So I think we should stop there. Closing thoughts? Closing thoughts? We have lots of talk. Lots to talk about. Well, possible let's, worlds. Let's, let's enumerate the yeah. topics. So possible worlds. Uh, Wait, are they, are they denumerable? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> hmm, yeah, right? Maybe they're, you know, they're, they're big size. <laughs> <laughs> about that. Yeah. About this. No. Okay, anyway. Right, uh, reference. Reference? Well, that's too broad. What do you mean reference? Well, in, uh, two things. One is just... You seem to want to make something of descriptions, but also not really. Okay, so, so the relation so, of reference and description. So the relation of reference and description on the one on the one hand, and two, um, an idea which you brought up, which I'm not really sure is explored a lot, but which is a big deal, I think, um, because it could clarify lots of issues if it's like really a thing, which is that which is metonymic reference. Yeah, right. Um, it might just be that um, actual entities are parts of possible structures or whatever. And not structures, possible uh, fusions. Yes, mm-hmm. um, and and that we refer to the whole in virtue of referring to the part. Or yes, like yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I like that. Yeah. In other words, this might be rather than reference by causation, you might say it's reference by constitution. Ooh, I love it. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's it. That's yeah. That's my view. Of course, I like it because it's my idea. I, I know. I know. <laughs> but I think that's its name. Yeah. Its natural name, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. If I can borrow from. From uh, <laughs> what's that Platonic dialogue? Exactly, Cratylus. Uh, yeah, Cratylus yeah. sounds like a Star Trek episode. It totally does. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. Okay. Anyway, um, so there's that. There's yes. possible worlds, specifically ontology of possible worlds. Right. Basically, Stonlicker versus Lewis. Yeah. Um, and then there's what else? I think that's it. Those are the main things. I mean, we could. Yeah potentially explore more about uh, about structure or about 
Sorry. I think those are those are the main things, I guess. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, and causation. Oh, sure. Yeah. Specifically, well, we haven't really talked about where our problems with causation are, and I'm not really sure why you brought it up, but um, but I know that previously we've had talked we've we've talked about causation in relation to uh, explanation, right? Modality, modality, even grounding, yeah, constitution, and right. laws. laws, right? Yeah, just that whole cluster of right. concepts, yeah, and properties. Well, actually, no, that one hadn't come up. Um, that's no, just yet although, another thing. Although it's another, it it's, a, it's another thing. It's related in the sense that if somebody is to actually be a good structuralist, they're just going to have to tell a better story, I think, than about it's been, properties. About properties and relations. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, Since when did you get all hung up on structure? I, I thought this was Alex's domain, you know, structure, structure. The thing is, though, I feel like the structuralists want to do everything they can to actually dodge answering the harder metaphysical problems. Yeah, no, because I agree. most of the most of the structuralists come from a very empiricist. Yes, empiricist, but on the positivist end, almost. Yes. Side of it, it's a continuation or scientific. Yeah. Right. It is a continuation of that stuff in mm. spirit. But you're not attracted to that. Not at all, no. Which is why I have to tell a different story than anything they can possibly say. But um, you are but it's also why structuralism. For math. Yeah. So why one and not the other? Why one and not the other? Well, because I, I, I suppose it's probably to do with... Um, just disagreements about what scientific... The content of scientific theories or... Um, I'm just much more realistic about but scientific about theories math? than they are. The, you, about you, scientific theories yes, than they but, are. Yes, but you're not as realistic about math? Um, if it's more realistic to be Platonistic than it is to be structuralist, then I'm not that realistic, yeah. But it's realistic enough, so to speak. Yeah, in the sense that it's subjective. Yeah. No, I think you're right. right. I think, I think yeah. we're both equally realistic. Yeah. If I go further... Or if Platonism goes further, I think it's only with respect to first comfort with modality, if you do it my way. Sure. Um, or just the the uniqueness of the referent. Right. Um, yes. I think it's really just about that. Yeah. Um, okay. Call it? All right, cool. Yeah, let's call it.
I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me. 